Hey everybody, this is Paul from Make Teaching Sustainable, and I want to welcome you to the Make Teaching Sustainable podcast. Today, we are joined by an amazing first guest on the Make Teaching Sustainable podcast, Kate Roberts. Kate Roberts is a national literacy consultant, top-selling author, and popular keynote speaker. She taught reading and writing in Brooklyn, New York, and worked as a literacy coach before joining the Teachers College Reading and Writing Project in 2005, where she worked as a lead staff developer for 11 years. Kate is the author of A Novel Approach and co-author with Christopher Lehman of the popular Falling in Love with Close Reading and of DIY Literacy with Maggie Roberts. Her work with students across the country has led her to the belief that all kids can be insightful academic thinkers when the work is demystified, broken down, and made engaging. To this end, Kate has worked nationally and internationally to help teachers, schools, and districts develop and implement strong teaching practices and curriculum. Kate and I have been in contact via social media for quite some time now, and I was so thrilled that she offered to join us today for this episode of the Make Teaching Sustainable podcast. Here goes. Kate, it's so good to uh, so good to see you, so good to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining us today on the Make Teaching Sustainable podcast. Um, before we jump into what you believe to be sustainable and unsustainable in teaching, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Who are you? What's your story? What's your role? And what keeps you coming back to teaching and learning? Mm, uh, first of all, so good to be here, Paul. It's good to see you, hear you, um, talk with you. I don't think we've ever actually had a real conversation. No, nope. it's a real treat. Yeah. Um. So I am. Uh. You know, I have like my current life and then my past life in education. You know, right now I'm a consultant and author and work in schools and districts, doing guest teaching and curriculum planning and. Uh, methods discussion and all that good stuff. And uh, I've been doing that for about 16 years now. Um, now I'm on my own, uh, but I worked for a long time with the Reading and Writing Project as well uh, in New York um, and across the country. Um, and before that, I was an eighth grade English teacher in Brooklyn, um, a literacy coach in Brooklyn. Uh, and before that, I did every other job imaginable uh, before I finally wound up in teaching. So basically, any profession, I at least dabbled in for a little bit because my 20s were a lost decade of trying to figure out what the hell I wanted to do with my life. And honestly, it's funny because the idea of like what keeps me coming back, it brings you back to like what started me teaching in the first place. It's like I had done all these different jobs. Right? I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I didn't know... And it felt like every job I tried, it felt like you learned the job and then just did that until you, like, died, right? Like, you learn how to be a lawyer and then you just be a lawyer forever, right? Or you learn how to be a doctor. I know it's, like, much bigger than you, like, doctor forever. But for real, like, the first time I went into a classroom, it was a sixth grade classroom in, in Hartford, Connecticut. And uh, I looked at the kids and I was like, I will never be done with this. You know what I mean? It was this feeling of like, I'll never get great at this, right? Like this will be a lifetime of work and adaptation. And like, 
I remember feeling like it was also just so important, like looking at those sixth graders in Hartford and just being like, I love them already. I don't know them. I'm just a visiting teacher, but I want to I wanna learn how to do this. And I think that's what keeps me coming back, right? Like, I still don't know how to do this in some ways. And there's still so many problems to practice to solve for teachers. I think the only other thing I would add is that what keeps me coming back are teachers. Um, I've really shifted in the last like five years, as I think you have as well, into like really focusing on the well-being and practice of classroom, like the reality of classroom teaching. Um, and I love, I love that I get to hang out with teachers all day. It's my favorite thing. I love that. I, I really connected with what you said about never. Um, I can't remember the exact words you use now, but like never really perfecting it, right? There's really no way to perfect teaching in part because it's just so complex, but also because kids are always changing. We are always changing. Society's changing. So the ways in which we teach need to change as well. So it is so engaging in that way. And for some, that can be sort of disengaging if they can't see that their efforts are leading to progress, right? And I think that's where that's where unsustainability comes in sometimes, right? When teachers can't see like, I'm making an impact, I'm doing what I set out to do. Even if I'm not doing it perfectly, I'm at least making progress. And there are so many barriers in schools to teachers feeling that sense of mastery over their craft. Um, Well, because like there is no mastery, right? So then how do we congratulate and celebrate and lean into and embrace all of the approximation that we have to do when we're learning how to do this and when we're doing it well? I mean, I've seen master teachers, but of course the teachers that I see and meet who are, I would identify as like, you've figured this out. You're really good at this. Yeah. So the people who are like, I have no idea what I'm doing, right? (laughs) They're like, I am always reinventing myself, always learning new things. Mm -hmm such an interesting time for that because there's so many changes in especially literacy instruction right and it like really challenges us to say are we gonna stay changing stay evolving stay open to all the new information and old information that we have i was gonna say like some of it's new some of it feels like it's new but some of it's not new (laughs) you know like i mean i was i did my master's in reading in 2011 i think it was and yeah. some of the stuff that's coming up now, I'm like, yeah. I remember that. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah, like, um, okay, so this is actually a great segue into, and you know, I know you're a literacy person, a literacy specialist, so we can frame this through literacy or we can be broader than that, right? But um, let's talk a little bit about the conditions, the practices, the resources that you believe are currently unsustainable And then obviously, why do you think these things are unsustainable? And then we'll get into, well, what do you think the solutions are? What are you learning right now about sustainability with with regard to literacy or just in general? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's such a good time for you to be doing this project uh, because, I mean, I know I'm assuming you feel this. I definitely feel this. There's so much that feels unsustainable right now for, for people. And we know that, right? We have evidence of teachers leaving the field. But even the people who don't leave, I I work with teachers uh, every day. And, you know, the weight that is on the people who are doing the actual work of teaching our kids um, can't be born forever, right? Like at some point, the weight has to lift. Um, you know, I, I, 
one thing I think that becomes unsustainable in terms of like I have a little categories, right? So on one is like curriculum, right? And the way that we like plan our units and think about our units. And one thing I've noticed is that since honestly the beginning of the Common Core, but it's only gotten, I think, worse over time, is that we do have this idea. We don't say it, but when you look at curricular documents or you hear people talk about curriculum or unit planning, there's this feeling that we have to teach everything all the time to every kid, right? Like that our units have so much in them that we say we're going to teach kids. And what winds up happening, right? The reality in the classroom is you're doing lesson one, whatever it is, and you teach it and maybe you teach it amazingly well. Maybe you're a master teacher and you teach that lesson just perfectly, but there's still groups of kids who didn't really get it, don't understand it, right, et cetera. And there's always such a pressure to move on, right? And then move on again, and then move on again, and then move on again. And one of the things that I'm noticing in my work is that we have teachers who are working incredibly hard and incredibly well at delivering good instruction to kids. But because there's such a pace to the amount that we're supposed to cover in the standards, et cetera, there are a lot of kids who aren't holding on to the stuff that's being taught to them, right? Because there's such a glut of what we're teaching. Got to cover all the standards, got to get to all the things all the time. So one thing I think that's unsustainable is just the amount that teachers, the amount that English teachers in particular are being asked to actually just do in any given unit, like the way we've organized our curriculum. Can I ask a follow-up? Please. So part of what I learned through talking to a ton of people in 2021 about sustainability was this idea of like a systems thinking approach, right? Where we are tracing back, like we have this problem, right? And usually the problem we see is sort of on the surface, right? It's like a superficial thing that's a manifestation of something much deeper. And so I'm curious if you have any opinions on like, where does that come from? Like, why do teachers feel like they have to cover so much where is what's the root of that or what are the roots of that if i were to if i were to make a relatively educated guess but certainly this isn't backed up by anything more than my experience um i think it's two sources one is the other unsustainable thing in education which is the standardized testing system and how that's the benchmark right we regardless of what we say those test scores wind up being the thing we're looking at and it creates a uh, mirage that we're going to get every kid up to some level of practice that got somewhat made up in 2013, right? Like there's this just, it's all so weird. So then it gets a lot of pressure and urgency to at least be able to say, I covered this, I covered that, I covered that before the the test happens. So one is the standardized test. Of course, that's the easy enemy. (laughs) That's the easy one to blame. Uh, The other source of trouble, I think, though, is the system of professional development that we've set up in districts and schools. I think that people like me can be part of the problem, quote unquote, right? Not me per se. Obviously, I'm blameless and perfect, but the system in which we work, right? Yes. We should get you a shirt that says blameless and perfect. Blameless and perfect. Thank you. I would like that, Paul. And I'm going to wear it around my house and I'm going to see if my wife will also agree. I'm going to, I might make it for you. So, I mean, you know, you need some merch. So <laughs> blameless and perfect. You could you could take that as your catchphrase. Oh my god, I love it. 
But I think that we always have new PD, right? There's always new PD. There's always more PD. And then as a professional development person, you sometimes feel also that you have to like, let's do everything. Let's add this in, right? The other thing I think that happens with professional development that probably is more of the issue is that it often comes top down and not ground up, right? So often it is. And I love the administrators I work with. I love the coaches I work with. I love the superintendent, right? I, what an incredible job. I can't do that job. This is no burn to any of them. It's the system, not the people. But oftentimes it's the people in charge who are setting the agenda for professional development. <sighs> And sometimes that's very different from what classroom teachers say they need to make their work go better, right? Or there are gaps there. There are a lot of people, you, I'm sure, I know I've spent a lot of energy trying to figure out how do we close those gaps? How do we make sure even if I'm doing the work that an administrator values for good reasons, how do I also link that work to what teachers need? But I think there's things we could do to the system of professional development to make it feel a little less overwhelming, right? That professional development isn't supposed to always be adding things to your plate. Totally. I mean, and I I see a connection between standardized tests and professional development, right? Because, you know, and administrators, I feel the same way. I work with admins and coaches too, and I, I love them and they do amazing work. And they're under pressures and constraints too. And I think when I was a teacher and when I was a lot younger and less regulated, let's say, I'd be like those administrators, like they, yeah, yeah, yeah. Power, you know, and then I was like, wait a second. No, they don't. They hold some of it. You know, mm-hmm. they can do some things. We all have, you know, things within our respective loci of control that we can do to work towards sustainability. But like administrators and coaches are just as much under the pressure of standardized tests as teachers are. In some cases, I think some principals are even under even more pressure because it the buck stops with them and they're seen as like if your yeah. scores don't go up you're the problem and then we're going to replace you that must be really intimidating i would assume i think so too it's a lot of pressure and they're also just doing so much right and you know i think what happens is it becomes a little bit of a vicious cycle because i work with plenty of people who will send out a survey to teachers to say what do you want to study who do you hear that that's thunder is happening here oh really i didn't hear that yeah, exciting oh well but like I work with a lot of people who send out surveys or ask questions to be like what do you want to study you know in your professional development plan but because this the this the machine's sort of broken in many places you know teachers don't necessarily respond to that survey with any depth you know I mean they're kind of like "Eh, I don't know if that's no one's going to listen to me or you know it's probably just going to be whatever it is anyway and so then the administrator makes the choice and then that just keeps going. Do you know what I mean? But if we could start to create more of a conversation where teachers are kind of taking over the system of professional development a little bit, right? Like, what is it that I need for my classroom to make it go more effectively, more sustainably, to make things feel like they're going better for me? So that- in my mind, it's those two sources, right? It's the outside pressure of the high stakes tests that don't necessarily match what students actually need to learn to read and write and then the sort of way that we're feeding that test and trying to develop teachers adds to this idea of we're teaching too much yeah um this is so random but this this just came up for me because I was thinking through all the things when I you know when I was teaching reading and writing self-contained in a classroom just the random things that would come up that we would do for the test like 
Greek illusions in fourth grade. Yes. And I was like, Get in. I mean, literally my team and I wrote like texts because there was nothing out there that would teach it well. We're like writing texts for this and everything. It's like, what are we doing this for? We're doing this so they can answer two questions on the map test, you right, know, right. or like the state test. And it's like, who is that really serving? Right, um, right. Yeah. It's something else you said really resonated too about just teacher voice in professional learning. And that came through time and time and time and time and time again in the, in the data that like teachers, teachers want to be seen as professionals. You know, we go to school for at least four years, some of us six, eight years, more than that. Right. And are still in classrooms teaching and have all this knowledge and all this experience. And then someone else is telling them what their classroom needs. And, you know, it should be a partnership. Administrators have a stake in this. Coaches have a stake in this. It shouldn't be like, it's my classroom. You know, I'm closing my door, but we have to recognize that like we chip away at teachers intrinsic motivation to be innovative and like solve problems when we micromanage them and hover over them. And so I wonder, you know, like these two unsustainable routes, standardized tests, professional learning, you know, how do you approach closing that gap? You know, what, what do you think will, will walk us towards sustainability with regard to those things? Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing is, um, I have a belief, this is going to be my hot take of the of the podcast here. So my controversial spicy take here. I think that sometimes when we open up the conversation to classroom teachers to say, like, what do you want to study, right? What do you want to think, work on? What needs to get better? That sometimes it's not expressed in in the most, like, workable, open, maybe productive way, right? Because oftentimes at the point that I'm asking a room full of teachers, okay, like one thing I do at the start of my sessions usually before I do anything is just ask teachers, let's just rank. If you were to say for the topic we're studying today, let's say it's reading, what the top three problems that you're facing or obstacles you're facing uh, to help your kids become readers, become stronger readers, et cetera, right? So I'll have teachers talk and then we'll list out uh, complaints, essentially, right? To say, like, what is in the way of that stuff? And a lot of times it's either the same stuff we've heard over and over again, right? Or it does sometimes feel like complaints. Like sometimes when you're in a leadership position, that's hard to navigate, right? Because if you're hearing things that feel like unchangeable, like a lot of things that'll come up are things like uh, time. Time is an obstacle. We don't have enough time with kids. So we don't have enough time to teach. That can feel disheartening as a leader because you're like, well, I can't change the time you have, right? Or when we hear complaints like uh, grammar, vocab, something like that, maybe those topics aren't the ones that we want to focus on as curricular leaders or professional development uh, offers. But it's my belief that whatever a teacher needs, we can bring in all those other ideals and things that we want to work for, right? The stuff that maybe... Um, um, are our goals from the top for the district that we serve, right? We can bring that in to whatever it is that a classroom teacher says they're struggling with. Because good teaching is good teaching, right? Regardless of what we're doing, like the practices that you're offering up in your book, in your work, the stuff that I do, I can bring that to, to whatever it is that a teacher's struggling with. 
But I think one way to close the gaps is to stop and really listen to what teachers are saying is hard, to listen to those complaints, regardless if they're being framed the way we like, (laughs) regardless of whether they're bringing up the things we want to listen to, to say that is true what they're saying. And we should start there to solve problems. It's a matter of trust, right? And like validating someone's lived experience. And that can be really hard when someone else's lived experience makes your life harder or or makes you uncomfortable, right? But it is so important. And I always think, okay, this teacher's complaining. Let's complaining quote, you know, this teacher's voicing a concern. This teacher okay. is seen as the as the kind of negative one or whatever. And I always go, but why would that teacher want to be seen in that way. It's like with kids, right? When kids act out, not to compare teachers to kids, but it's a similar vein, right? Like when kids act out in a class, they're trying to communicate something to us, right? Like why would a kid do these things and get this negative attention if they didn't feel like they had any other way to do it, right? They want most, I mean, most kids, I think all kids actually, they want to be seen and heard and validated by their teachers, right? I think the same thing can be applied to adults, right? Why would an adult want to go into a space and just be labeled as the complainer. Like they probably really care about this. And that's why they're, it's the ones who are disengaged that aren't saying anything. Yes. I'm a nodder. You know what I mean? I'll just sit there and nod and smile. And then I'll just ignore whatever you said if I don't like it. Right. I really value the teachers who speak up, who aren't afraid to be annoying, who aren't afraid to be persistent. And usually, at least in my experience in the classroom, usually their colleagues, even though they may not say it, are like, Hell yeah. You know what I mean? They're agreeing. They they just have found workarounds. They just shut their door and do their thing. But usually the things that teachers are bringing up are, in fact, real problems that everyone is facing. And if we could start there, I think we would rebuild a sense of trust in professional development. We would rebuild a sense of usefulness, right? The amount of times that you see online I mean, obviously never in my PD sessions, but online you'll hear people like complain, you know, about PD, like have to sit through another professional development session. Uh, You know, that shouldn't be what the system is, right? Professional development should be there to help you solve problems in your classroom, to help you make the work better in your classroom. And I think it's gotten sort of shifted to saying that professional development is going to raise test scores. Totally. And I believe it will. It has. Do you know what I mean? I have lots of schools and lots of experience where professional development has improved test scores, but it's only come from getting into popping the hood of the trunk of what's happening in our classrooms and solving problems of practice in creative ways that reach for our highest ideals. Absolutely. Right. That absolutely try to live up to some of the things that you and I have learned from people smarter than me, right, about, let's say, literacy or something. But I can only reach those ideals if I'm taking care of the problems that are happening in reality with kids every day. Well, there's this idea of like connecting, you know, PD, let's say, to actual practice. And it's so, I mean, I think this this unearths kind of a bigger problem of education as sort of an industry, right? It's, It's part public good, it's part industry. And, you know, we, we've come to believe that PD means I'm going to leave my building and I'm going to go to a conference and I'm going to, and this is, I mean, this is the hill that I will maybe not die on, but stand on and scream, scream, scream. You're going to fight real hard on it. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> because I find the great irony of 
PD now is, you know, there's all this learner-centered, student voice, student agency, like we need to teach differently. And then you go to these PDs and what do you do? You sit and you listen to someone talk at you for 90 minutes. And, you know, personally, I can't do that. Like, I just can't sit and listen for 90 minutes like that. And I just remember when I was in the classroom full time, I was just like, this is not helping me be a better teacher. Like, I want to go to the session where, and I've been to some great PDs where you actually are doing what the kids would be doing if you, you know, and that's the way I try to structure PD because you got to, you got to experience it to be able to implement it. Right. Um, And I think you can do that kind of stuff in a school or most of it, you know, you can do a lot of that with really good coaching models. I think that, that those are sustainable if you have the funding for them, you know, and then you are able to, what you're saying, solve problems of practice and have teacher voice saying, I'm having this problem. Can you help me? Can you be a thought partner in helping me solve this problem? That's right. I think, you know, what I learned at the reading and writing project and from people like Lucy Calkins and uh, Carl Anderson and all these people is that, you know, by building, we have to build teacher knowledge. Do you know what I mean? Not just deliver information, you know, building teacher capacity. I know for myself in the classroom and still to this day, there's like things that I realized working with kids. I'm like, oh, I don't know how to teach that. Do you know what I mean? Not really. Like I know how to like set up an activity and I know how to like assess it sort of, you know what I mean? Well, that that seems pretty good. But like, I realized like, okay, when a kid struggles to identify a theme in a text, how do I actually get in there and teach it? And that only comes from, as you said, practicing it, doing the work ourselves, right? Seeing what I did to to figure that out and then deliver that to kids as well. But it's not as, um, I don't know what the word is, not as packaged, right? That kind of learning. And that's actually, that's a great segue because I know that you're really passionate about people over programs and like programs, right? Like I I feel the same as you, you know, and it's, it's been interesting in my work as a coach that, you know, I go into schools and it's like, well, we have to use this, this program, Paul, you know, so I, I have to like exercise some restraint there, you know, and be like, well, I can't advise you to burn a program. Right. But then how can we take this, I like to call it a foundational resource. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Because well, and I think it's a really tricky line, right? Because I need stuff. And I know that when I was teaching, you know, especially my first few years, I was learning so much about relationship building with my kids and just how to navigate through the school day and deal with just the, the vibes of a classroom, right? And all the sort of decisions that you have to make that I remember, uh, you know, we had no programs when I was teaching. It was open readers and writers workshop, very much just invent what you want to do with your kids, right? With some philosophies and structures. And I remember cursing, (laughs) just being so frustrated. I'm like, I need a lesson plan, (laughs) need a thing to do, right? So when we say like people over programs, the program itself, it's not people, no programs. Do you know what I mean? It's not people only, (laughs) inventing your own stuff. It's the idea of a program as being a foundational resource, as you said, or a program of as being a set of beliefs that we're ascribing to. And of course, we should probably be pretty careful about what beliefs we sign up for in a program, uh, especially around something like literacy. Uh, but it's the idea that, you know, as we move forward and we see more programs being introduced to different districts, 
you know, there's going to be great PD, I'm sure, about those programs that help you learn how to use them. But I've never seen a program be able to teach a kid how to read or write better. I've never seen a program teach a teacher how to become a better teacher. I've seen a program make things a little more sustainable in some ways in terms of resource development and sort of figuring out what my sort of hack my way through this unit's going to be. So the way we think about it is a twofold. One is how do we create professional development that helps teachers use the resources they have, use the programs they have in responsive ways for kids? That's the first thing. And then the second thing is uh, we're really interested in um, offering up different avenues of professional development for teachers. So we're like recording workshops and uploading quick sheets and stuff to our website we have like a subscription service now um, to try to put more of the agency in the hands of classroom teachers of like, what kind of PD do I need right now? What am I facing? What challenge am I facing this week in my teaching? Can I go get PD for very, very cheap uh, that can help me answer those questions? That's sort of the tact we've been taking through it. Yeah, but it. programs are not the enemy, right? It's not like us versus them. It's just that how we're using them uh, really matters. And anytime I hear the word fidelity, uh, right, that's when that's when all the alarm bells go off. Not because I don't understand why teaching something with fidelity might have its uses, right? But it just winds up never working. In how do you feel about how do you feel about the word integrity? Because some people have reframed fidelity with integrity and they say teach it with integrity. Sure. I mean, integrity to what? Right. Like, that's the thing. Like I the reason so I have like my biases. Right. I'm sort of a, a reader's workshop, writer's workshop person. But what matters about like reader's workshop isn't sort of the sequence of strategies you teach or the architecture of a mini lesson or the reader's notebook versus online versus post-its versus like not like that isn't the integrity of readers and writers workshop for me right for me the integrity of that work is the philosophy that it stands on and the structures that it offers a teacher to be able to use to respond to their kids period so like if you're saying live to that level of integrity, like I'm going to live and, and the choices I make in the classroom, I'm going to try to live under these beliefs and I'm going to try to use these structures or others to reach those beliefs. Cool. But what winds up happening is that it's integrity to the architecture of a mini lesson, which drives everyone insane. That used to drive me like more than insane. Like I was, cause I was, I remember I was, um, I was working on a team and we were actually, implementing units of study and gosh you know what love the ideas in the units of study i do yeah. i had so many yeah. things i would pull from those books great. and i loved like i loved how they were they were packaged like the project yeah. you know like research clubs holy yeah. cow love so that cool. third so grade. Cool. loved that but i didn't teach it in order and i supplemented it and i created additional things because i was noticing things like and I don't think they were ever, those those units of study were ever actually designed for people to just like mindlessly plod through them. You know, they're they're in a sequence because it's a book and books are sequenced, right? But to, to I think we're saying the same thing here, but it's just, it would drive me kind of nuts because I'd be like, let's be mindful teachers here. You know, the people who've written this, these, these units of study have done the best they can to anticipate for kids they're never going to meet. 
They're counting on us to know our kids. Yeah, they're counting on us to know our kids and to know how kids learn to read and write and then use this as like a, as a bank of resources, you know, ideas. It would always just like, so I love that you see people over programs, like that over word is so critical, right? Because it's really the people first. And both people, right? Like it's about the teachers, right? So what's wonderful about a program is that, again, you don't always have to reinvent the wheel. And there are very smart people who talk a lot about having a good curriculum, you know, improves instruction and outcome for kids because it's not up to me. You know, when I started teaching, I was 27, you know, I was in the wilds of my life. I wasn't necessarily always making the best decisions in my own life, let alone pedagogically for my students. Maybe it shouldn't be all up to me what I do the next day with my kids. Do you know what I mean? Like I see that too. A curriculum is good. A program can be good. So yay, people, teachers sometimes need a program, but you know, it's also for the kids. I want the kids to be I mean so many people have said this phrase or variations of it but our curriculum isn't the curriculum our kids are the curriculum right yeah gosh you just made me think about when I started teaching I was literally 21 years old I was <laughs> the same with my wife yeah Maggie I wasn't was even 22 yet like and I remember the first day the kids come in I closed the door and I was like oh my god they left I've me never, alone. They left me alone in here with them. <laughs> they I've never been me. so nervous in my life. Like, I it know. was crazy. Like, but yeah, and I actually think about when I learned to be a writer. Like, I I think I'm a really good writing teacher. It's like it's one of my superpowers. I love teaching writing. And I remember when I didn't know how to teach writing, and the way I learned was through this program called Being a Writer. Have you heard of Being a Writer? No, I don't. I don't see it anywhere anymore. But it was very like mini lesson, mentor text, like workshop style. Um, and it, and for, for the first couple of months of school, I pretty much just followed it yeah. and it was very helpful. It was a great scaffold for me. Right. But the difference was no one was telling me you must follow this verbatim. That's right. Instead it was, here's, here's something to help you. And let's talk about the, what, good teaching looks like in writing in addition to that. So you understand why this is constructed in the way that it is so that eventually you can, you can just use this as like a recipe or kind of, you know, use this to be more creative with your teaching. And that was, I I think back, that was so powerful for me to have that resource to help me. Yeah. I mean, it's the idea of not wanting to reinvent the wheel, right? Again, it's unsustainable to think that every teacher in America should be inventing their own units or even every school should be inventing their own units. There's nothing wrong with a program in and of itself. It's just thinking through what that might give you and what it won't. Yeah. Amazing. Well, Kate, thank you so much for joining me today and for talking about these really important ideas um, can you tell everyone where they can, um, where they can find you to, to get to know you better, um, whether it's on social media or otherwise? Sure. Um, so we have a website at kateandmaggie.com, uh, where we have both, a free resources page and a subscription page for workshops and quick sheets. Um, one of the things we're really loving right now is taking requests from teachers. So saying like, tell us what you need PD on and we'll make stuff if it's in our lane. Um, and then also pretty much every social media under the sun I'm on at this point, which I have so many mixed feelings about, but 
we are on Instagram at Kate and Maggie. Basically, if you search Kate and Maggie, we come up on most of the social media platforms. I love it. Yeah. And then I uh, and then I have some books out. Uh, so I have a novel approach is looking at the balance of whole class texts and choice books and seeing if we can marry those two things together. Um, that's been my most recent book uh, as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. This was so fun. I hope this is not our last conversation. And me I hope too. IRL at some point. And, uh, yeah, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure, Paul. Thank you. And thank you for your work. My pleasure. Well, friends, this concludes today's episode of the Make Teaching Sustainable podcast. As a reminder, you can follow me at Sustain Teaching on Twitter and Instagram. I want to say a special thank you to Kate Roberts for joining us today. And if you would like to be a guest on the Make Teaching Sustainable podcast, just shoot me an email at paul at maketeachingsustainable.org. Have a great week.